Hi, I'm John Moskow. And I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students to develop both commitment and capacity to build ethical institutions. Our guest today is Jesse Hagopian, an editor for Rethinking Schools. He's a longtime teacher in the Seattle Public Schools, where he's taught ethnic studies at Garfield High School. He is a co-editor of the book, Teaching for Black Lives, and the editor of the book, More Than a Score, The New Uprising Against High Stakes Testing. He's director of the Black Education Matters Student Activist Award, a founding member of Social Equity Educators, and the recipient of both the 2019 Racial Justice Teacher of the Year Award from the Seattle NAACP Youth Coalition, and Social Justice Teacher of the Year from the Seattle Public Schools Department of Racial Equity. His blog is, I am an educator. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Let's start by asking about Rethinking Schools. What does it do and why? Yeah, Rethinking Schools is a publisher and a quarterly magazine that's about empowering parents, students, and specifically educators to transform the public education system to empower youth and educators um, to fight against all forms of of oppression and and exploitation. And it's really been a leading voice for social justice educators for decades, helping to both uh, promote social justice pedagogy in the classroom and also to provide a policy lens for educators to help better understand the attacks on public education that have occurred and and organize to fight back, to make the schools a place where we can root out institutional racism and sexism and homophobia and, you know, defend ourselves against this corporate education reform onslaught that has dedicated itself to privatizing public education um, and reducing the intellectual process of teaching and learning to, to a single score on a test. And so we, we've really stood against that attack and, and helped to support communities that are organizing to defend their schools. A lot of your work has centered on bringing the Black Lives Matter movement into schools. What does that look like in practice? Yeah, this has been some of the most inspiring work of, of my career as an educator. It started in Seattle in 2016 when one elementary school here in Seattle, John Muir Elementary, decided they were going to have an event to celebrate their black students' lives at the beginning of the school year in 2016. And they gathered together community members and families and different organizations that were going to come and high five the students on their way into class, right? And it was going to be led by many black families and then have an assembly where they celebrated their black students. And the art teacher designed a shirt for the educators to wear that day that said, Black Lives Matter, we stand together. And when that story hit the media that educators were going to wear a shirt that said, Black Lives Matter, um, unfortunately, some hateful people began bombarding the school with threats and and opposition to it. And then some particularly hateful person actually made a bomb threat against an elementary school because the teachers had the audacity 
to publicly celebrate their black students' lives. And so the event was officially canceled by the school district. Um, and to the credit of the educators and community members, they actually went through with the event anyway, but it was smaller than it would have been otherwise. And they actually had to bring bomb sniffing dogs through the school that morning. And so out of that, we, we brought this to the attention of our union and our union voted unanimously to support the action that they had done. And they went farther. They said, if we really support what John Muir Elementary did, everyone will wear a shirt to school that says Black Lives Matter. And so on October 19th of that year, um, in fact, we had some 3,000 teachers out of the 5,000 in, in the Seattle Public Schools come to school wearing a shirt that said Black Lives Matter. And even more importantly, many of them teaching lessons about institutional racism and the way it impacts our schools and our society. And that really launched what's now become a national week of action during the first week of February, where we've broken down the 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter global network into teaching points that we teach to throughout that week. Um, and we have four demands of this movement. We first said, we want to end zero tolerance discipline and replace it with restorative justice so that we're not pushing black and brown kids out of school um, and keeping them from graduating. We said, number two, we want to implement ethnic studies and black studies in all of our schools because we, we know that our students have the right to learn the truth about the contributions uh, and struggles of black people in this country. And we said, number three, we want to hire more black teachers. We've seen many studies that show the increased graduation rates of black students when they have even just one black teacher in their in their K-12 career. And then uh, we've also seen that some, we've lost some 26,000 black educators since 2002 that have been pushed out of classrooms around the country. Uh, and we wanna reverse that. And finally, last year, we added a demand, fund counselors, not cops. And that's because there are 1.6 million children in public schools across this country that go to a school where there is no counselors, but there are police officers. And that's an imbalance that has created and contributed to the school to prison pipeline. Hmm. I have a follow-up question. So in addition to the week in February and the movement for that around the country, what are other things that people are doing during the year to, to implement these demands and to try to get these demands instituted? Yeah, so we encourage teachers not to limit their anti-racist pedagogy to a single week, right? In fact, that should be an ongoing practice throughout the year. And for students to really feel the impact and know the sincerity of the week of action, they need to see educators begin teaching Black history and Black contributions um, and struggles from, from the very beginning of the year. But the week of action allows us to really highlight several principles and guiding lessons that I think have elevated the demands of this movement. And we encourage educators to take those demands and press for them all throughout the year. And thankfully, that's just what happened here in Seattle. You know, Black Lives Matter at School movement helped to raise the demand of ethnic studies and black studies. But then it was some courageous educators um, 
partnering with the NAACP. So people like John Greenberg and, and Tracy Castro-Gill and, and um, NAACP uh, education chair, um, Rita Green, and many others for coming together with youth that pushed and won the ethnic studies program here in Seattle um, that, that I've directly benefited from being one of the ethnic studies teachers here in, in Seattle. And so that ongoing movement was a product of this week of action. Jesse, many teachers, especially newer teachers, struggle just to keep their heads above water. How do you approach them about including or even centering social justice issues? Yeah, the first thing I think is important to understand is that social justice education is not an extra add-on into the, the standard curriculum. It's really, I think, a part and parcel of everything that creates quality education. And I think it also is so critical to staving off um, teacher burnout, right? We've seen the rising numbers of teachers burning out and leaving the profession. I forget the exact figures now, but I know they're incredibly high for teachers leaving the profession in the first one, two, three years. And I think a lot of that is the external pressures, the extremely high class sizes, the pressure to teach to the test and the labeling and shaming of teachers who don't have high test scores, which really reflects the poverty and institutional racism that uh, the students are facing in the classroom rather than the mass shortcomings of educators across the country, right? And so when you start to uh, recognize that there are powerful forces that are creating inequitable outcomes in our classrooms, then you actually need to teach about those powerful forces if you want to engage your students. And I think that social justice pedagogy is in fact the best classroom discipline, right? In fact, uh, empowering our youth to speak back against racism and, and class exploitation and other forms of oppression is what engages them in the classroom. And I think, you know, new teachers will find that, that those engaging conversations will lead to much more um, student buy-in into the, the curriculum. So following up on that, some teachers feel very comfortable working to empower students to be politically active. Others see their jobs as simply teaching their subject matters. So both in terms of that and also the question about getting a teacher to understand that, in fact, looking at it from a social justice point of view will make their job easier or at least no more difficult. Um, what do these actual conversations look like, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis? I mean, if somebody's coming in and it's something that they haven't thought about before and they're not already politically engaged, um, what does that dynamic look like? I mean, the first thing that I say is a quote from the great historian and educator Howard Zinn, that you can't be neutral on a moving train. And in fact, our society is hurtling off the edge in, in many really destructive ways, right? We have a school to prison pipeline that's being systematically built from our classrooms 
to uh, the prisons. In fact, at Garfield High School, where I've taught for over a decade, there's a new $200 million youth jail being built just blocks away from our school. Meanwhile, right now we have some classes with over 40 students uh, in them, and we can see where the priorities of this system are in terms of um, funding the incarceration of our youth rather than supporting their well-being in, in schools. And so if you uh, are claiming to be um, completely neutral and that you don't want to bring in issues of social justice into the curriculum, in fact, what you're doing is upholding the status quo. And the status quo is deeply problematic. It, it's it, it, it's racist and um, the status quo, in fact, is funneling billions of dollars to the richest 1% in this, in this country away from our schools. And, and educators have shown that they can be a powerful force um, to, to help stop these inequities. They can educate our youth to teach them to think critically about the way our societies and our education system is set up. And they can also take action themselves, as we've seen with the mass strikes that first started as the Red State Revolt and then has spread all across the country with one of the, one of the most important strikes in L.A. And these were strikes that took on that inequality head on. And I think that one of the best ways to prevent teacher burnout, especially among younger teachers, uh, is to get involved in these struggles and to feel the power that happens when you're with tens of thousands of colleagues like the LA teachers did in the streets demanding smaller class sizes, demanding a nurse in every school building, demanding a, libra a librarian in every school building, demanding an end to random searches and seizures by police of students in the classroom. And I think that that strike in, in LA really helped to show that educators have a lot of power and can use their voice to transform public education. And that kind of an empowerment, I think, is the best way to stave off the burnout. Hmm. Yeah, so New York State recently adopted a culture, culturally responsive sustaining education framework. We spoke with David Kirkland at NYU's Metro Center, whose organization played a key role in creating the framework. On a systemic level, what do you think are the necessary strategies to implement this sort of framework on an ongoing basis? Yeah, I think that districts and states that are moving towards culturally sustaining pedagogy models and, and implementing ethnic studies are taking really important first steps um, to acknowledging the, the centuries-long role that education has played in reproducing institutional racism and in hiding and concealing the contributions of people of color to this country. And so I applaud those efforts. At the same time, I know that these efforts cannot be fully realized when there isn't full funding for them. And I think that the, the struggle for fully funding public education is so vital. And we see all over the country massive tax breaks for the wealthiest while our schools go neglected and underfunded. Um, we saw that, you know, companies like Amazon based here in Seattle paid zero dollars 
zero dollars. It, it's just mind-boggling that they could pay zero dollars in federal taxes while we have schools that are crumbling and falling apart and we have classrooms where there's not enough chairs for the students at the high school where I've taught for, for so long, right? And so I think that, you know, here in Washington state is a prime example of that. We're a blue state that has been controlled by Democratic Party politicians in, in the state legislature for a very long time. And yet we don't have a state income tax. And so we have one of the most regressive tax systems uh, in fact, we have the very worst, most regressive tax system in the entire country, even while we espouse Im important issues around improving public education. But none of those things can be realized when we don't fully fund it. And so we need funding so that we can keep promoting ethnic studies programs. We can make professional development available for teachers so that they can improve in in their ethnic studies pedagogy so we can lower class sizes uh, to meet the needs of all of our students so we can provide wraparound services like a counselor in every school and a nurse in every school that all of our students deserve and so I think really the the struggle to fully fund public education is the great battle that we're in right now. Yeah, I think that that's, that's really clear. And I'm thinking also, though, in terms of sort of while that is happening and in, in conjunction with that, I mean, looking at New York State in particular, um, I know a lot of districts that are simply not oriented towards culturally responsive education. It's just not the way they've thought. They certainly aren't thinking in terms of, you know, even the, the four points in terms of Black Lives Matters in schools. I mean, each of these is going to be a huge struggle to get implemented in a lot of districts. I mean, it sounds as though in Seattle and certainly in places like Chicago, the teachers unions are playing, or I don't know much about Seattle, but can be providing a force towards these kinds of, you know, mindset changes and, and institutionalizing them. Um, but in a lot of other places, for example, in New York, teachers union has not been a particularly strong force for, for this. So one of the things that we've been kind of looking at is, okay, so now that New York, for example, has this framework in place at the state level in Albany, um, and we're seeing in New York City that the new schools chancellor, Garance, is trying to implement it in practice, what do you see, maybe taking Washington as an example, what do you see that, say, your state education department should be doing to really get schools to be thinking and doing these kind of practices so it doesn't just remain a piece of paper in the state capitol? Right, right. Well, I am proud that my union, the NEA, the National Education Association, formally endorsed Black Lives Matter at School week of action and that they've taken strides to support our week of action and also broader efforts at implementing ethnic studies. <clears throat> and so I think that's really an important component in pushing states to implement ethnic studies and culturally responsive curriculum. 
So I think the unions are going to play a vital role in pushing this struggle forward. I am alarmed at places where unions have not gone on board with this, like in New York City. And I hope that that changes very quickly because New York City is isolated as one of the only unions in the country that has not formally endorsed the week of action. And I hope that that changes this year because I think it's so critical to advancing this struggle that I think has to continue if we're going to meet the needs of all of the students that the public schools serve. I mean, we know that the outcomes for black and brown children in the public schools are are dramatically behind. And we've seen that when you look at the suspension rates across the country. In Seattle, black students were being suspended at six times the rate of white students for the same infractions. And that triggered a Department of Education federal investigation. And those numbers aren't that different across the country. And in fact, it's black girls who are suspended at the highest rates, six or seven times uh, white girls nationally, right? And so we see the way racism and sexism overlap to specifically punish our black girls, right? And we know that those higher suspension rates lead to higher dropout rates. Um, You know, we've seen the way that, that police treat minor infractions in the school as arrestable offenses. And as we just saw in Florida, a police officer arresting a six-year-old girl uh, for a temper tantrum at her school. We know that uh, we need culturally relevant pedagogy. We need ethnic studies approaches and we need restorative justice in in our schools to meet the needs of our, our black and brown children. And so, the unions need to take this struggle up and the state education departments uh, need to to listen. And I I am very proud that our state education department in Washington state has now implemented an ethnic studies advisory board, which I was just appointed to. And we are going to be having our first meeting very soon to talk about implementing ethnic studies standards across the entire state. And I think this could provide a really important model for how to advance the struggle for culturally sustaining pedagogies. As you know, Ethical Schools, the the podcast and blog, is, is focused on ethics with the idea of a very broad universe of obligation encompassing not only local and worldwide communities of people, but also animals other than human and the planet. As students become politically active, do you see them engaging with these, some of these other issues as well? I mean, I was deeply inspired by the climate strike that occurred on Friday. I took my own kids out of school and we went to the climate strike and there we saw many hundreds and thousands of youth from across Seattle who were joining with millions across the globe Mm -hmm. saying we demand to have a future and we're not going to have that future stolen from us by the fossil fuel industry and their apologist politicians. And it was incredible to see this movement start from the youth themselves and um, to actually see them 
lead this movement and pull adults along with them. And I, I think that youth have always played critical roles in social struggles, transforming education and our broader society. The story of the civil rights movement in this country cannot be told without the story of hundreds of middle school and high school students across the South filling jail cells, demanding an end to Jim Crow segregation, right? And I think that the new climate justice movement being led by youth and the movement to to end gun violence in our schools uh, and the mass shootings that have terrorized our youth in school buildings across this country is also being led by youth. And so much of the Black Lives Matter movement has started by young people in this country. And so I take my inspiration uh, from young people who are fed up with a society that is controlled by the richest 1% who see the schools as their playthings to profit from rather than to empower our youth and who are siphoning off the wealth of our society to use to enrich themselves rather than to support the greater good and to see the youth um, studying this, figuring it out, and now acting and, and struggling and fighting back is, is really an incredible thing. Speaking of student activism, you were deeply involved a number of years ago in a school-wide boycott of the MAP standardized tests at Garfield. Um, how did that develop and what's happened since then? Has it been possible to maintain that level of awareness over a long term? Yeah, the MAP test boycott that was launched at my high school is one of the, the greatest things I've ever had the opportunity to participate in. And it really showed the, the brilliance of public school educators, their creativity and in, in resisting oppressive forms of assessment. And it was a true inspiration for the national opt-out movement that erupted in the wake of, of our MAP boycott. And it started with one reading teacher, a beloved reading teacher at, at Garfield High School, uh, Mallory Clark, who said she was tired of giving the MAP test, the Measures of Academic Progress test, and seeing it shame and label youth who were far behind in their reading skills, that she was having huge success having them reach grade level reading. And this test was an obstacle and a barrier to her achieving her goals with the youth. And she contacted me and said, you know, Jesse, I'm not going to give this test another year. And I was just elated to hear that there was a teacher who was willing to not only speak out against the harm that standardized testing was causing our youth, but actually resist. And so we joined with other educators and we went department by department and interviewed our educators to find out, was this test giving them any meaningful information? And uniformly the teachers said no. And we held a, an all staff meeting where we discussed uh, the potential of refusing to give this test. And it, it spread from just Mallory not wanting to give the test to a unanimous vote of all the educators at Garfield saying they were going to collectively refuse to administer the MAP test. Mm -hmm. And when we did that, the superintendent of the Seattle Public Schools at the time threatened the educators with a 10-day suspension without pay 
if they refuse to administer the test. But because of the overwhelming support we got from the students at Garfield High School and from the PTA, and then the letters of support that flooded in from around the country, um, not only did the superintendent not suspend anybody, but in fact, at the end of the school year, he got rid of the MAP test altogether for Seattle's high schools. And that was a decisive victory that gave our movement a lot of confidence and has since led to an ongoing um, movement to limit the impact of high stakes standardized tests because we know that the average student in the K-12 system takes 112 standardized tests in their career. It's, it's outlandish. It's completely absurd, right? Like when I went to school, you might have one in elementary school, another one in middle school, and then you'd have another one in high school and the SAT. Uh, but today it's become a billion dollar industry to profit off of the data collection uh, of our youth. And it, it's really obscene. And that's why many thousands of parents are opting their kids out of these tests and why we have an ongoing movement here in Seattle. You know, educators were inspired by that, but they didn't end there. We passed a resolution in our union last year saying that we're calling for a moratorium on all standardized testing. We want to return assessment to the classroom um, and have educators be able to assess their students and figure out what they need to grow rather than a billion dollar corporation determining what our students learn. Because we know if it's not on the test, then it's hard to work it into the curriculum because teachers live in fear that they'll be judged poorly if the kids don't pass the test. But figuring out strategies to end institutional racism is not on the test. And so then it often gets left out of the curriculum, right? And so we need uh, more authentic forms of, of assessment. And I'm really proud that our movement was able to, to gain so much strength that this year, the state legislature actually struck down the exit exam requirement for having to pass the SBAC test to graduate from high school, which was contributing to our school to prison pipeline here. And that was a major victory for the authentic assessment movement. Are there some specific ways our listeners who are largely educators across the country could support this work? The first thing I'd say is go to blacklivesmatteratschool.com and figure out how to participate in this incredible week of action that, that's growing, right? It started with one day in Seattle, but it spread to Philadelphia that same year. And the teachers there were transformed it from a day of action to a week of action. And now because of this collaboration, it's become this national movement that we're encouraging teachers all across the country to join. There's lesson plans on that website that you can use during the week of action, but, but really at any time. There's uh, classroom resources and posters and coloring books um, and videos to support teachers who are committed to uplifting and centering our Black youth in the classroom. And I think that it's important that educators get involved in the organizing efforts. You can join our national calls, which will be advertised on the website. 
You can get involved with your local organizing committee to help put on events in your, in your city for Black Lives Matter at, at school week. I think that that is really um, critical work. And we have a couple months, really several months here to get ready for our, our week of action. And we'd love to have the educators that listen to this podcast get involved with, with this effort and grow the movement from the 30 cities that participated last year um, to, to many more this year. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention that we haven't asked about? No, I, I guess just another resource that I think is important for, for educators to check out is the book. I had the privilege of co-editing with Wayne Now and Diane Watson, Teaching for Black Lives. I think it's a resource that can really help educators right away begin this important work of combating institutional racism in their own classroom and, and their own school and their school district and beyond. And we will link those resources to our website. Thank you so much, Jesse Gopian, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me today. I appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Check out prior episodes and articles on our site, ethicalschools.org. We have a new article on how college and career counselors can help students consider the ethical impact of their choices. You can find out more about Jesse's work at rethinkingschools.org and at iameneducator.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Ethical Schools and Instagram. Till next week. 